what I was told was that a Singaporean businessman was down on his luck. He went to a temple in Batu Pahat in Malaysia where he was told that he needs to build a shrine to a deity in Singapore. And uh, then he rebuilt the shrine in Ubin. Uh, the old yellow wooden shrine was taken down uh, and in, in its place was what was essentially a Chinese temple. I, it's, it's made of granite. There's the ceramic, green ceramic bamboo window bars. There's uh, Chinese tiling on the roof. The form of the roof is, is a Chinese temple. Uh, and again, this tracks very closely to the sanitization of Malay Karamat article. It really is just mapped out perfectly. We're now the, the, this, it's kind of complete. It's gone completely from being a nature shrine into uh, a, you know, a, a Taoist shrine. There's no longer, those nature elements are, are only represented by a rock that sits on the, underneath the altar. Whether or not that changes, you know, I mean, it, it physically changes the experience of going there. You're listening to BiblioAsia Plus, a podcast produced by the National Library of Singapore. At BiblioAsia, we tell stories about Singapore's past, some familiar, others forgotten, all fascinating. If you go to the German girl shrine on Pulau Ubin, you will find offerings meant for a little girl, like mirrors, dolls, and even cosmetics. Who is this mysterious German girl, though, and why is there a shrine here? My name is Jimmy Yap, and with me in the studio to talk about the shrine is William Gibson, a writer and researcher who's based in Singapore. He's done extensive research and fieldwork on local shrines, and he's also written about the German girl shrine in BiblioAsia. In addition, he is a former Lee Kong Chen Research Fellow. Welcome back to BiblioAsia Plus, William. Guten Morgen. Yes, good morning to you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. When we were last year, William, you, we spoke about the Kramat on Kusuk Island, and today we're going to talk about the German Girl Shrine. So you know, tell us a bit about the shrine. Uh, it's on Pulau Ubin, uh, but in, who is it dedicated to? Who is this mysterious German girl? Right, so... the. German Girl Shrine is uh, located on the southern shore of Ubin near uh, Pulau Katam, uh, which is a very low, almost a sandbank that's located right off of Ubin. Uh, and it's located on what used to be um, uh, the tailings of a granite quarry. Uh, it originally was on the mountain that was quarried away uh, and is now a great big pond. Uh, I think they call it Katam Quarry now. Uh, the original name of that mountain was Ong Lai Swa, uh, and the shrine was located on top of that. The German girl tradition is um, probably fairly old, but is not the only tradition associated with the shrine. The story that you'll hear today is that uh, at the onset of World War I, there was a German family living uh, on a, a coffee plantation uh, on that mountain or near that mountain. And when the British soldiers came to take the family away uh, to intern them, the girl panicked and ran away and uh, 
died, either fell off of a, a mountain or hid in a cave and starved. There's a couple different versions of that. Uh, and then her parents were taken away as prisoners. The callous British didn't care. Uh, and the local people on Ubin discovered her grave and uh, d- began to, to deify her. Uh, and from that point forward, she was sacralized. Uh, later, when the quarrying works were approaching the, the site of that original shrine, they moved it to its current location, which is down closer to the shore. Uh, and that would have happened sometime in the late 70s or the early 1980s, uh, before, uh, really towards the very end of the quarrying works that were there. Okay, okay. And uh, how did you, you know, personally encounter the shrine? You know, how did you come to know about it? And, you know, when did you go and, and view the place? So I first came to Singapore in 2005 uh, and was both, I was employed and single and had a lot of time uh, and used to go to Ubin quite a bit. And if you go during the week, it was, back then especially, it was very empty. It wasn't as developed as it is today. And I just kind of stumbled upon this shrine. Uh, you rent a bike and you ride around. It used to be down this dirt track, uh, and it was really strange. Uh, I'd never seen anything like this, uh, you know, as a foreigner especially. Uh, it was this yellow wooden shack, and there was this altar, and there was you know, joss sticks and candles, and it was smoky and weird and wonderful. Uh, and I used to visit quite a bit. I used to lo- really like riding bikes on Ubin, and I would go there. There were some newspaper articles that had been laminated and pasted on the wall, and I didn't think much of it at the time. Uh, I really liked going, and I can continued to go over for many years when I lived in Singapore. I then went to Indonesia uh, with my family uh, for seven odd years. We moved back in 2019 and I was having tr- trouble finding work and, and looking for something to do in Singapore. We came back for my wife's job. And so I said, I'll go out and visit the German girl and see what she can tell me. And I went back out there and the shrine had been completely rebuilt. I actually rode my bike past it because I, I didn't even recognize it. Uh, and this got me thinking, like, okay, if that can happen, what's what's going on here? And that's when I began researching the actual story, which led to the BiblioAsia article. That's really interesting. So it's actually, I mean, you, you now become a, a bit of a scholar on Kramat. So it sounds almost like the... Uh, German girl shrine kicked off this whole thing. Is that Absolutely right? right, and it's. I, I always left offerings at the shrine. I always just lit joss sticks and, and really, yeah, okay. and always. I've always felt a presence there, and whether that's just the impression of the shrine itself, because like I said, it used to be it was this little shack, and it was it really was kind of powerful. Whether again, that's my impression. Or, I mean, faith is very intuitive. You sense the sacred. Uh, it's not something you can literalize. I think. I mean, I went out there looking for something to do, and wound up getting this. So three years later. Uh, you know, I've been working on Karamat and I got the fellowship, as you mentioned. I've got a book now on my work that's being shopped around to publishers. All about Karamats. Uh, well, Karamat and these 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 Chinese shrines that that have these Karamat um, associations and traditions uh, with them. Uh, so yeah, it really was the German girl that kind of set me on this, or whatever spirit is there, set me on this kind of pathway, which has led me to this place right now, actually. We should say Danke, mein uh, Fraulein. Fraulein. Yeah, Danke, mein, danke mein Fraulein. You, you mentioned in your, in your Biblia Asia article that there are you know, a few versions of this German girl shrine, but then eventually saw one official version emerge. How did that happen? Okay, so in researching this, what I found out was that different ethnic groups on the island had different traditions about the shrine. And I would later discover this is not uncommon in Singapore with these kind of Datuk shrines like this, similar to what happens on Kusu, actually, as we talked about last time. Uh, so there was a Malay tradition, uh, a couple of them, actually, that this was the grave of a Javanese princess who had come to Ubin 
um, you know, in, in the midst of time, 100, 200 years ago, and uh, stayed there. She was cared for by a, a Tong Kang builder, a, a, a shipbuilder. Uh, and when she died, they put this shrine on the hill for her. Other traditions were that this was the grave of the shipbuilder himself or one of his workers. One Malay man I was able to interview, uh, Pakamad. If anyone remembers, there used to be a cookie monster drinks stall. Uh, on on the island, uh, he, that was his drink stall. He remembered visiting it. There were never any gravestones on the on the shrine, but there were other things to indicate it was Karamat, such as yellow cloth, uh, kun, um, um, Kayan Kuning. Uh, yeah, Kayan Kuning. Thank you, Kayan, Kayan Kuning around the around the shrine, but no gravestones because if there's gravestones, it would gender it. Malay gravestones are, are gendered, uh, so that's why you can have two different genders oh, in I that see. tradition. Okay. Yeah. However, the female gendering seems to be dominant. As far as the German girl tradition, it seems to be the Chinese one, uh, although she's still called Datuk Maiden. And that use of the word Datuk, uh, I mean, I guess we can get into this one. We're gonna, we'll talk a bit later about termite mounds and all this, but that's tied into this termite mound worship. Just like it is on Kusu, there's a, a female Datuk, two female Datuks on Kusu. One's younger, one's older. In this case, it's a younger Datuk that, that was you know, you know, sacralized. Why the German girl became popular I mean, I could, we'll go into, I think, sort of the mechanics of it and how it happened. It's just a cool story. I, I, it's an interesting folk tale. There's zero historical evidence for it, by the way. There were no coffee plantations on the island at the outbreak of World War I. Uh, they had all converted to rubber by then because there was a coffee blight, wiped out coffee. The coffee markets had collapsed. So that part of it's definitely not true. This is also a really well-documented period. We're not going back that far in time, number one, so 100-odd years. Uh, both British and German records uh, are accessible. And there's simply no record of a German family having lived on the island at the beginning of World War I. Had there been a German family on the island, we know what would have happened. And yes, the, the men were taken away uh, at one point by the British uh, to be in an internment camp. However, the wives were left behind. So it wouldn't have been this event where these soldiers showed up and, and you know, took, took the parents away screaming and the kid would have run off. It would be inconceivable that the British would just suddenly let this little girl disappear into the night and not mount a search party. There's no record in newspapers of a girl going missing. Had a young German girl gone missing on a bin, it would have shown up in, in the press somewhere. So the, the story comes out of, of something else. Um, the actual origins of that story I was never able to track except a man who lived near the shrine for many, many years. And when people started visiting the shrine in the, in the mid-1980s, he started giving interviews. And I think over the course of 20-odd years, he gave something like 11 different interviews in both Chinese and English language newspapers and ma magazines, always telling the variations of this German girl story. He then, in an oral history interview, which is kept here at the National Archives, uh, said that he was told the story when he was young by Uncle Funda. And Uncle Funda said that he had never seen this girl's body. All he knew was there was this mound that looked like it was in the shape of a girl and that he had been told the German girl's story. So it really is an oral tradition, you know, and very indigenous in this way. Why German? I don't know. There could be a kind of uh, uh, anti-British sentiment there because it, the British are the bad guys in the story, and there could be a, a you know, kind of kickback against British. There is no, however, uh, historical basis for the German girl itself. I, I, it's fascinating. And actually, you know, your article in Biblio Asia, what was very interesting was how you took all these elements and looked at them very, very carefully to sort of, you know, clarify what is fact, what is fiction. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I just want to turn to talking about termite mounds. And you mentioned that earlier, um, 
you know, why is it that termite mounds become a site of worship? What is it about termite mounds that makes them auspicious? Yeah, this is cool because it covers multiple religions that you could find in in Malaya. Uh, and I was scolded recently in a peer review for using that word because it's anachronistic. But uh, I, I like it because it, it encapsulates the kind of syncretic culture that came about because of all the different people that wound up here uh, over the centuries. Uh, so if you look at Southern Hindu culture, there's a, a famous goddess, Sri Marimam. Uh, she's got a, a temple on Southbridge Road. Uh, and there's a tradition of her uh, incarnating as a black cobra, uh, and cobras use termite mounds as nests. Oh. So in India itself, in T- Tamil Nadu, you can find big termite mounds that have been dressed as an icon of that goddess. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. And she also has these smaller, uh, l- lesser deities named uh, uh, Dewa, who are called Naginis who are snake goddesses that are emanations of her, but also can be found in these termite mounds. And so to give one example, this still happens. This isn't some ancient history. I was in uh, Malacca not long ago and a kind of rural part. And I came across some uh, uh, Hindu shrines that were near a Hindu temple. And there was a, uh, a termite mound that had a shrine built around it. And there were icons in front of Sri Mariamam, uh, a Nagini and a black cobra. So this still, still occurs. Now we know there were Hindus on the island because they worked when there were coffee plantations, they were workers there brought from South Asia. So they were there. There's an indigenous um, tradition also of termite mounds being the location of Puaka. These are uh, nature spirits, very localized. They stay in in one particular place. They can be good. They can be bad. Uh, As they get Islamicized, as Islam comes in and those traditions become Islamicized, often they were given names like Saeed to designate them as Islamic spirits. So therefore they're good. Um, if they're bad, they're bad jinn, and you keep away from them. What's very interesting is where the German girl shrine is located uh, is in a delta of a river called the Sungai Puaka. Okay. So there were Puaka traditions on site. Mm-hmm. Uh, older maps show a Tanjong Puaka at the same location. These spirits would dwell within these termite mounds. We've got a kind of a Hinduism and a kind of animism that's coming in. And then we get Chinese tradition coming in. And this is mapped out in a very important article. It's called The Sinicization of Malay Karama in Malaysia. The author is uh, Chu Hock Tong. You can find copies of this online. Where was it published? Uh, he published a couple of different versions of it. One was published, I think, in the uh, Journal of the Malaysian Branch of the Asiatic Society, Jembras. Uh, and the other one was published, I think, as a standalone through uh, what was NUS back in the late 1970s, I think, when this was published. It's very important to look at that because he maps out this process where Chinese immigrants would come in, especially in the rural areas. They, they would, Malay would already be worshipping a, at a, a termite mound. Uh, and they would take on that tradition using their own earth gods that they brought from China, those, those traditions like Tutigong and things like this. Uh, and eventually these localized deities, they became what's known as Datuk. Uh, so it's not uncommon to find Datuk Kong located at termite mounds. And in places like Penang, they're still worshipped. And you can find termite mounds that have Datuk Kong shrines built around them uh, where they continue to be worshipped. So given all of that and stories that the German girl herself had uh, fallen off a hill and then been covered by ants. Uh, in the Malay tradition of the, of the Javanese princess, it was said that when she died, her body became a stone. So it seems like this was a termite mound that looked like a kind of recumbent figure. For some reason, she was gendered uh, female. Um, that could be because it was located near water. Uh, these shrines near water were tended to be gendered as female. 
you wind up with this later tradition of the German girl coming into it. Uh, but it seems like the start out is what's called a Kermat Busut, which means a, a an, an, an anthill Kermat. Now, I'll tell you this. Uh, my last visit there last year, whenever I was back there, I think yeah, about a year ago, uh, when I was at the shrine, I was alone except for a Hindu man who was worshiping at the shrine. Oh. Not Chinese, Hindu. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, so that shows that that tradition isn't dead, that there's, there's still uh, Hindu worshipers that go, go to the shrine. Um, and, and that's to me is interesting because it gives you a real kind of grounding on where the origin of this is. And then the folktales that grow out of it. And again, I, I want to emphasize, I, I don't want to discount the folktales. Um, it's very important. And the German girl shouldn't be sort of like, well, no, that's fake. And we should, we should stop talking about her. She's a very important e- element. You know, why she is German, all that's more of a kind of an academic question. Uh, the fact that she's still um, of interest is, is very important. Um, and I guess, I guess if you want to, we can talk about how, how she has, has become kind of a, a celebrity, you know, in, in, in Singapore culture, yeah? How did she become a celebrity? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a kind of series of happy coincidences, I think. Um, and in the mid-2000s, a new caretaker took over the shrine and placed a Barbie doll on the shrine. Now, it's not clear if he did that because it was an offering to the young girl, because people have been giving uh, the kind of accoutrement you would expect for a young girl, like, as you said, mirrors and makeup and your cosmetics and things, perfumes. Either the, the doll was put there for the girl or it's an icon of the girl herself because Barbies are Caucasian, so, you know, it's a blonde white girl. Uh, and it represents the Karamat spirit. You know, the spirit of the German girl. Um, that happened at about the same time the internet became a kind of presence in our everyday life uh, through smartphones. And then uh, Facebook comes around not long after that. And it's just viral heaven. You know, you can't deny the the, the power of this story of the, the haunted Barbie of Palau Bin. And you see a lot of titles that are very similar to that, you know, the haunted Barbie. Of, and it just became fodder for the internet. Uh, and so you wind up with blog posts and YouTube videos and travel logs, and it just takes off. What happens then, however, is that the older story, it gets suppressed. So the older Malay versions of like the, the Javanese princess, for example, get almost completely forgotten in place of this exciting and, you know, the haunted Barbie doll. You know, that sounds really interesting. Apart from people writing blog posts and all that, about, was there a TV show about it? Yeah, there, was there was a musical a t- about yeah, it? A t- um, uh, yeah, there was both a theater production, which then became a telemovie, I think they call it, okay. made-for-TV film. All the director right. of that is Ho Chun Hyong, uh, who's a nice guy. I met with him uh, when I was working on this to research. He originally went out there as a film student and shot a 17-minute documentary uh, on the shrine and interviewed the caretaker and all this. And that then inspired a local uh, playwright named Lim Jen Er, who wrote a, a stage production called Moving Gods, which was produced in 2003. That then was adapted into this telemovie with the same name, Moving Gods, who's the director of the telemovie was uh, Ho Chun Young, who was originally the filmmaker, right? So you get a nice closed loop. It's a beautiful film. Uh, it doesn't tell the story the way you would expect it as a kind of the story of the German girl. It's much more abstract. Uh, the spirit is represented by this Chinese woman uh, who wears a, a, a kabaya and has this encounter with this kind of brutish taxi driver who then winds up taking care of the woman and she gives him luck. He wins the lottery. Uh, because of her presence. But it's not a kind of literal interpretation where you have like a little blonde girl 
running around in the woods or something. It's, it's a gorgeous film. I don't think it's easy to find. They gave me a copy when I was researching this, but uh, uh, the director did. But uh, it's if you can find a chance to see it, it's a very interesting interpretation of the story. It was filmed on location, so you can see you've been in the, in the, in the mid-2000s before it was changed. Uh, it, it is a beautiful film. So let's we'll, we'll just be clear here. You, the film that you're referring to is, is the telly movie, telly rather, movie than the, yeah. rather than the original 17-minute film. That uh, The 17-minute student film is interesting. I mean, it's a, it's it's got all the hallmarks of a student film. I mean, it's kind of roughly shot and roughly edited. But it's very fascinating because he was there interviewing people who uh, had excavated. Okay, so when, when they moved the shrine, the granite quarry, uh, you know, was, they had to move the shrine. I mentioned that earlier. So the company that owned the granite quarry paid to move the shrine. They brought out a Taoist priest to uh, oversee this this moving of the shrine. Uh, not uncommon uh, when Dr. Kong shrines are moved in Malaya. They're very common at quarries, by the way, because they're earth gods. They protect people that work in the earth. Uh, and so they excavated, exhumed whatever this mound was. And the, in this uh, student film, uh, uh, Ho Chun Hyung found some of the people who were involved in that exhumation and, and asked them, what did you find? Uh, and the one guy he interviewed is named Bala, who I, I just passed away, unfortunately, uh, uh, since then. But it, it, he, he has this look on his face like, are you are you nuts? We didn't like, you know. It wasn't a grave. We didn't find anything, you know. Okay. And and he he, he pressures him. Other traditions say that they dug out uh, uh, finger bones and an iron cross. If you look at very carefully at the stories uh, over the over the years, those shift and change. There is an urn on the um, uh, altar which supposedly has the remains that they found in this. Uh, if you look at traditions of of Dr. Kong shrines that have been moved uh, for construction, usually they put an uh, urn on the new altar as a way to accommodate the Karamat spirit, as a kind of home for the Karamat spirit. And usually these urns are Chinese, meaning they went to the local porcelain shop and just got a you know an urn. Uh, in the film, in this telemovie, uh, they do a beautiful thing with this, where they the the caretaker opens this was supposed to be the urn on the altar uh, and a turtle crawls out oh wow as a kind of sign that he was doing the wrong thing whereas the cab driver was doing the the correct thing it, it really it's a gorgeous film uh and again it, it wouldn't have come about if that student film hadn't been made earlier which is a, an important document i think of the time for, uh, for understanding the the origins of the shrine yeah Okay, I, I need to find out how to get a copy of this I, film. I, I th we might have it in the National Library. It might be mm -hmm. available if you go to the library to watch it in the library itself. Okay, uh, we'll, but it we'll really, look it, it up. Really, and actually, honestly, it should be brought back because it's a it's MediaCore. They could bring it back. Yeah, you hear me, MediaCore? You listening, <laughs> MediaCore? Um, oh, so the shrine went through extensive renovation sometime in 2015. Uh, how does the renovation change the essential nature of the shrine? Yeah, this is interesting. Um, I mean, I spoke to the current caretaker uh and i gotta be careful because all these people are alive i don't want to like name names but the current caretaker uh, told me a lot uh through an interpreter i went out there and i, I knew i need to get a, a shout out here to the urban explorers of singapore i needed people to go out there who could speak hockey and and they were able to put together a team of translators and we went out there and interviewed uh, quite a number of people over the course of the day uh and so we interviewed the caretaker he was involved with this transformation what i was told was that a singaporean businessman was down on his luck he went to a temple in Batu Pahat in Malaysia where he was told that he needs to build a shrine to a deity in Singapore. And uh, then he rebuilt the shrine in Ubin. Uh, the old yellow wooden shrine was taken down uh, and in, in its place was what was essentially a Chinese 
temple. I, it's it's made of granite. There's the ceramic, green ceramic bamboo window bars. There's uh, Chinese tiling on the roof. The form of the roof is, is a Chinese temple. Uh, and again, this tracks very closely to the sinitization of Malay Karamat article. It really is just mapped out perfectly where now the, the, this it's kind of complete. It's gone completely from being a nature shrine into uh, a, you know, a, a Taoist shrine. There's no longer, those nature elements are, are only represented by a rock that sits on the, underneath the altar. Uh, whether or not that changes, you know, I mean, it, it physically changes the experience of going there. Uh, but that, it's in the same location, at least. The other thing they did was they added a new icon to the altar, which is about a three meter tall representation of the German girl. She's holding a sprig of coffee in her hand. So now on the altar, there's the original urn, there's the Barbie doll, or a Barbie doll, uh, and then there's this icon to the German girl. And because she's supposed to be Christian, they put these little, like, cherub dolls around it. Like, you've seen a, a painting by Raphael or something like this. Uh, so it's really, the syncretic elements are also all there. And like I said, I saw a Hindu guy going in and, and, and worshipping at this thing. So it's, it's, it really is, again, Malayan. Maybe instead of being anachronistic, we can say that this there is a kind of Malayan folk culture, Malayan vernacular culture. You won't find it in other parts of the world, maybe bits in Sumatra and something like this, but it really is localized. So I, for me, that's a good word to use to describe these kind of phenomenon. How many times have you been to the shrine? I used to go quite a bit in my first tour in Singapore. Uh, since we've been back, there was the pandemic, of course, when we're all locked, locked up. Uh, and now I've got a kid. It's not as easy for me to get back there. I've also, it's more popular now. Ubin itself is more popular. More people want to go there and do the biking. And so the shrine itself, I think, is visited a lot more now, which again contributes to its popularity because more people go out there and discover it. They go online, they find these YouTube videos and things about the German girl. And the, and the, 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 the story has become an important part, I think, of, of Singapore vernacular culture because of that. And whenever you go to the shrine, um, you say you light a joystick. You ever ask for anything? Have they been granted? Have you won any money from 4D? I, I'm stupid because I never ask for money when I go to these shrines. I don't know why. I go to all these shrines that are famous for making people rich, and I wind up never asking for money. But I, I wind up asking for things like help, actually help getting the fellowship, the Li Kong Chan fellowship. Oh, really? I asked for that. When I was at the German girl wow, shrine, wow, okay, beforehand. okay. Uh, asked, I've got. I said I've got a new book. I'm trying to shop to publishers. Uh, help for things like that is what I asked for. I've never. Well, I'll take that back. One time, I, I think I mentioned this in our last interview, but one time I did get a a, a lottery number, uh, and I went out and I asked for help. I didn't win. I was off by one digit. Okay, it, it always happens, but you know, you just have to have faith. <laughs> what are you working on now? I've been invited by the Friends of the Museum to give a talk at the Asian Civilizations Museum on Karamatan heritage. Oh, fantastic. I think with an emphasis on the difficulties of preserving these things um, because of the different value systems and sensibilities uh, from different ethnic perspectives that are involved, it is not always a kind of linear way to preserve them. Unlike, let's say, a church or a temple where it's, you know, it's very clear you know, it, how, how you would go about preserving it. When you're dealing with a karamat, it's a lot of Muslims reject it as a form of polytheism. Uh, other Muslims embrace it. You might have Taoists coming in at the same site, uh, you know, how do you preserve it then? You know, who, whose narrative do you preserve, in other words? So that's what my talk is going to be about in January. Okay, and, and you're, you're working on a book on Karamat as well. It's, well, it's done. I mean, it's a 100,000-odd word manuscript. Uh, Terence long Sevilla. Book. Well, you won't be able to put it down. Okay. I, I, it's, it's <laughs> what's the book about? Turner. Uh, it's called, I think the current title is something like Sacred Relic Forbidden Idol, the Karamat of Singapore. Okay. 
Dr. Terence Sevia, who uh, is, a, is a local guy, uh, a, a brilliant scholar, and is currently at the Harvard uh, Divinity School. Uh, he's a specialist in Islamic studies, uh, has uh, said he would write the foreword to that book, and I'm in, I'm in dialogue with him about that. I think it'll come together by next year. Based on my, my, my fellowship research, which came out as a very long PDF, thankfully a lot of people were very interested in that, and a number of people, both scholars at places like NUS, uh, as well as uh, heritage enthusiasts, local heritage enthusiasts, have approached me with uh, things I missed, corrections, changes, sources, uh, which has been incredibly helpful for me. And uh, so putting all that together and building a kind of context uh, is what the book is for. Uh, so I think I think there's a lot of stuff because of the internet. There's a lot of information that I, I don't want to say it's incorrect, but it, it's a way of extending the folk stories, and that needs to be contextualized uh, and with keeping a kind of empirical materialist uh, objective in the research to create actual historical fact. Uh, so I use a lot of archival research, newspapers, maps, and things like that. Well, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, if you type in German Girl Shrine into Google, your name is like number one and number two on the search results. So congratulations. I mean, it's... it's I'm in a strange position because I'm foreign. My Malay is not great. I, I don't speak any of the Chinese dialects except for swear words. Uh, I don't speak any Tamil. You know, and, and I think it's hard for me to... Uh, I have to find a way to legitimate myself in this kind of activity. And I always have to bear that in mind, you know? Yeah, okay. You know, thank you very much, um, um, William, for doing this. I've not been to the German Girl Shrine, but I hope to go someday. But now we've come to that part of the interview where we do quick fire questions. Okay. So, cue music. Bum -ba -dum -ba -dum. What is the most unexpected offering that you've seen at this shrine? At that shrine in particular? Or any shrine? Um, there, it's a hard question to answer because it's, I don't know what unusual would be when you're already dealing with a very esoteric, exotic, strange kind of experience. I mean, most people can just light a joystick, you know, and go through this. I've never seen, at the German Girl Shrine itself, you know, you're supposed to bring uh, things for little girls. And I've done that. I've bought like little hair bands and things oh. and, you, and you leave them on the altar. Oh, okay. And so you see these kind of mounds of, of you know, hair bands and hair clips and uh, uh, little dolls and little toys and things you can get, at, you know, at inexpensive toys. Uh, that's not that unusual, though, I came to find because there's tri uh, some Taoist uh, shrines for the wandering spirits, which sometimes specifically are for the wandering spirits of children. Uh, sometimes these are even in temples. Sometimes they're roadside shrines. Uh, and you'll find the same kind of offerings there of cosmetics and toys and things like that. It's not common, but it's not unusual. Either. Okay. I've never seen anything completely weird and outlandish. There used to be food offerings that were made at Karama. Oh. Things like dyed eggs, eggs dyed red, tulur uh, bunga, flower eggs, uh, they call them. Uh, nasi kunyit, yellow rice. Uh, but almost, That's almost all gone now. So if you wanted to make a movie about shrines, which shrine would you pick? No question, Rodden Moss. Oh, really? Absolutely no question. Why? Because Rodden Moss is one of the most fascinating stories of... The story itself of Rodden Moss as we know it from the film and from Abangsawan, uh, the story of the shrine, uh, the mystery surrounding it, uh, the way it's become a kind of important plank in the Singapore early narrative and kind of a kind of pre-colonial narratives of Singapore, uh, the mystery on the name. It's just you could do a kind of horror noir film. My God, I think I'm writing my next novel already. Thank you, Jimmy. 
You're welcome. You, yeah, you could you could definitely do a kind of horror noir centered on on Rod and Moss. I read that. Yeah. Well, I'm, at least I've got one fan. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, don't quit your day job. <laughs> Complete a sentence. A historical memory is. Historical memory is conditioned by authoritative narratives that want to hijack it for its own purposes. And I think the importance of vernacular traditions, even if they are ahistorical, like the story of the German girl, is they resist that kind of authoritative narrative. Uh, and in my own research now in Karamat, I inevitably had to go back and look at things like, uh, for example, Badang the Strongman. That story has been completely taken over by the state, and it's used in National Day parades and things like this. But if you go back and look at the actual story and the origins of that folk tale as it works its way into the Malay annals, you find something different. And in a way, it can be used as a kind of uh, counterpoint to, at the very least, these kind of official narratives. And for me, this is when you look talking about historical memory, you have to look at those two different kinds. One is the authorized, and the other is the vernacular. Okay, well, um, uh, thank you very much. Or as we would say in German, Dankeschön, Herr Dr. Gibson, <laughs> for, for joining me on Bibliotheca Plus. To learn more about the German girl shrine, you have to read William's article um, entitled Unraveling the Mystery of Ubin's German Girl Shrine. We're very happy that you, you, you've come back, uh, William. I wish you good luck on your book. And, um, you know, I hope you're going to write again for Bibliotheca. Of course I will. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Thank you. Danke. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe to this podcast and the BiblioAsia newsletter. Thanks for joining us on BiblioAsia Plus.